Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. America's a democracy, and we've never had royalty. I know most of you are way too young to remember. I just barely do, but we got close in the 60s. There were a couple of kids that felt like royalty to the country, especially the boy. He was the son of a beloved and tragic president. The morning after John Kennedy was elected, he claimed victory, and he appeared on TV with his family, his wife by his side, who was obviously pregnant, in the last days of pregnancy, and he closed his brief speech with, and now my wife and I prepare for a new administration. And with that typical Kennedy chuckle, he added, and for a new baby. Well, that baby was her son, John. He was known as John John to the country. I guess that's what his family called him. And in toddlerhood, he was fascinated by soldiers, especially the soldiers who saluted his dad when they got on and off presidential helicopters. And it wasn't long before John was wanting to salute all the time. The only thing was he did it with the wrong hand. And the adults in his life were always correcting him. John, salute with your right hand. Well, even if you weren't around in those days, you know the tragic history of what happened in Dallas. His father was gunned down on the streets in 1963. And I barely remember, I was seven years old at the time, but I remember that the services were on television on all the channels on that following Monday. During one of the services, John got kind of antsy. And so Jackie thought that perhaps it was best maybe that someone could take him out and kind of wait with him somewhere other than the service. So a Marine colonel took John out to one of the little side rooms of the church. And to keep him occupied, they practiced saluting. And the colonel kept telling him, John, salute with your right hand. One more time, I know that almost all of you are too young to remember, but anyone who watched that procession, or perhaps has even seen it in archival footage, anyone who watched that procession will never forget one moment. It was that moment when JFK's casket passed the family. And Jackie leaned down to John, who was just about to have his third birthday, and she said to him, you can salute daddy if you want to. And he stepped forward and with the right hand saluted his dad. And with that one act entered the heart of the whole country. We followed him through the years as he grew up. As a young man, he became a lawyer. He married a beautiful lady. <laughs> but as we read about all the time, the real passion of his life was flying. He took lessons bought a small, relatively safe plane that kind of fit his capabilities in those early days. But in time, he wanted a more powerful aircraft. I should point out that he was VFR rated. He was a VFR pilot, visual flight rules. It's where all pilots start out. They're dependent on what they can see out their windshield. 
Well, you don't have to be a pilot to know that there are times, there's, there, there's weather and there's situations that VFR pilots shouldn't fly in. It's just not safe because something alters what they can see out their windshields. But being VFR and not IFR, by the way, IFR stands for instrument flight rules. It is where a pilot is so skilled and so well-trained that even if what she or he sees out their windshield doesn't allow them to be oriented, they, they trust their instruments as superior information. But, but even so, being VFR and not IFR, that flight on July 16, 1999 should have been okay. The plan was for John to fly himself, his wife, and her sister over to Martha's Vineyard for a family wedding. And like I said, it should have been okay. The days are long in July and a lot of sunshine, and they were scheduled to leave about 6 p.m. Should have been fine. But they kept getting delayed. One delayed led to another, and they weren't able to take off from that little airport 11 miles west of Manhattan until it was almost dark. At 2.15 the next morning, the family reported that the airplane never showed up. And in time, the Coast Guard reported finding the plane in the waters of the Atlantic off Martha's Vineyard. All three perished, and when they were found, they were still strapped into their seats. The pilot had flown straight into the water. There were a lot of reasons, and you can read about them. One pilot pointed out 10 problems but in the official analysis, the, the reason for the crash was the scourge of private pilot, pilot fatalities, spatial disorientation. I don't know anything about flying, but I do know that the website Skybury defines spatial disorientation this way. Now think about this because ultimately we're headed for spiritual truth. Spatial disorientation is the inability of a pilot to correctly interpret aircraft attitude, altitude, and airspeed in relation to the earth or other points of reference. Well, this is way over my head, but part of the problem, and you saw this when Stacy and Joe were talking a few moments ago, part of the problem is that spatial orientation comes mostly from what we can see. But the vestibular system that inner, of the inner ear, it's where we get our sense of balance, our sense of motion, and our sense of body position. It's what allows us to respond quickly to correct those things. I mean, who among us hasn't found him or herself just kind of losing balance and then correcting it suddenly? It is that vestibular system of the inner ear that gives you that sense of being balanced of your position in regard and relationship to your surroundings. Only 15% of spatial orientation comes from this part of your body but it's very powerful and it has a way, as again, you heard Joe and Stacy say, it, it is so powerful that it, it can override your other systems. It goes straight to the brain. I don't stage a few moments ago, our head of security, Danny Brown was here. And when I was getting ready for the four o'clock service yesterday, Danny told me about when he, he is an IFR pilot, but when he first started flying, he talked about, I think he said the second time that he flew into clouds. And he said when he got into the cloud and he couldn't see where he was, he said that he had this overwhelming sense that he was banking hard to the left. He said that is how he felt. He, was, he just felt certain that he was banking hard to his left. But before he controlled it, he looked over at the attitude indicator and the attitude indicator ended that he was flying perfectly level. He said it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life to override that feeling that I was banking hard to the left and to trust my primary instrument.
The problem with spatial disorientation is that a pilot can feel that he's doing one thing when in reality he's doing the total opposite. And it can get too late very quickly. It's what pilots call the graveyard spiral. Well, you know, this is the point where I need to stop talking about actual flying. For one thing, I can never be a pilot. Between my anxiety disorder and my ADD, it's just not possible. <laughs> we have a lot of pilots at New Spring who have assured me, Mark, we can teach you to fly. It is not a good idea. You saw Dr. Joe Beck on stage. He got me in a simulator <clears throat> one day, and I looked at those, what looked like thousands of lights and buttons. And I thought to myself, with my ADD, if there were only three, I might be able to fly. <laughs> I have no business in the cockpit. And you guys don't know this. Like I said, I've been here a long time. The first few years I was here, I was afraid to fly. I never flew till I was 35. And I have, the reason for that is I have extreme acrophobia. I don't even like to be up in a tall building in an elevator. I remember years ago I was preaching, uh, doing a conference in Toronto, Canada. They have a tower kind of like the Space Needle in Seattle. And so the team wanted to take me out to kind of show me around the city and, and uh, you know, me to have kind of a good time in Toronto that afternoon. And they showed me the tower at the floor and they said, we're going to go up to the top of that tower. And they said, the, the floor is completely clear. They said, you can walk out over the city. You can lie down if you want to. I said, no, I can't. <laughs> I said, I'll be in the snack bar when you get back downstairs. <laughs> and the idea of being 35,000 feet in a bus with wings, you know, 35,000 feet high, it didn't make good sense to me. And you have to be really, really way back New Springer to remember this. But I used to tell corny jokes about flying all the time, like Jesus saying, Lo, I'm with you always, and stuff like that. Silly stuff. But eventually I got tired of driving around the country doing conferences, and so I've flown hundreds of times since that time. In fact, I have to be on a plane tomorrow. But I don't know anything about flying. And I don't have any business in a cockpit. But I will tell you this. Here's what I do know. I know that everything I've talked about so far in relationship to spatial disorientation is huge to help us understand life. And here's where I need to go with this. So you might want to fasten your seatbelts because we are about to go counterculture in a big way. The culture that you and I have been groomed to embrace tells us to live our lives based on how we feel about things, even to the point of telling us that there's such a thing as my truth. In other words, how I feel becomes my truth. In other words, truth is secondary to how I feel. It's actually worse. The idea goes something like this. How I feel actually becomes truth. And if I feel a certain way, not only is it truth to me, you have to accommodate it because I feel that way. We are a culture flying straight into the ground, into the same trash heap of cultures who have fallen before us. Haven't we forgotten that there's something far greater than just the sensations that we have. I mean, ultimately what matters in life, what matters in your life and my life, 
the, the, the defining quality that determines whether we're going to be success or failure. It doesn't come down to how I feel. Everything comes down to results. I mean, it, you want to have good results. I was having breakfast with a close friend, a brilliant man who's a new springer. He's an extraordinary leader. And he said something to me at breakfast that made me set up. He said, when people pass my casket, they won't remember how I felt. They'll remember what I did. He said, I could feel compassion for the poor. But if I never did anything about it, no one's going to remember how I felt. They're going to remember what I did. So in this counterculture series at the first week of 2024, the smart person, the person who wants to land well, the smart person has to ask this question, will my feelings guarantee a safe landing? What if my feelings lead to a crash? Will it be enough to say, well, that's how I felt about things? I mean, will that be an adequate answer? Will it, will it be enough to say, well, I felt that was the right thing to do? Listen, guys, results are what matters. Results are king. Okay, if we're going to get real results, we need to tackle this feeling thing. And, and, and let's start with this. Let's talk about what the Bible says about our feelings. Because the Bible kind of describes a spiritual spatial disorientation and says that we're prone to it. Now, I'm going to read a verse right now. And this verse is in the Bible several times. I'm going to read the verse without the little comments in between. Then we'll go back and look at this. The Bible says there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And as I said, that's quoted several times in Scripture verbatim. So let's go back and look at what that means. First of all, the Bible says there is a path. Well, you know, this is... This is metaphorical in nature. What scripture is saying is there is a way of life, a way of orienting life. There's a way of life before, and it's these next two words that really get my attention, each person. You know, it's real easy for me to see some people that are headed down wrong paths and say, well, clearly there's a way that seems right to them, but it's not right. But God is saying to your pastor, Mark, there's a way before you that seems right that will end in a crash. The Bible says there is a, a path of life before each person that seems right. And here's what I find really interesting. The Hebrew word for right there means morally right. You and I live in a world where our culture is grooming us. And I use that word very strongly, that verb. Our culture is grooming us to build our own morality and right in the face of that, the word of God says there is a way of life before each person that feels morally right, but it ends in death there. The, the word actually means ruin. I know I'm going strong against the grain today, but I'm caring about your results and I want you to land safely. I know that people mean well when they say this, and I understand there's sort of a legitimate way. If the terms were defined in a particular way, it might be legit. But to me, I think one of the most fallacious pieces of advice, and I hear parents say this to their children, which really does, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Follow your heart. Listen to what the Bible says. Scripture says, whoever trusts his own heart is a fool. Whoever walks in wisdom, in other words, whoever gets information that's superior, whoever walks in wisdom 
will, and I love this next word, survive, because when I get on an airplane, that is my number one goal. I want to survive. I mean, I'd like to get there, but even before that, I want to survive. Now listen, that's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying when you're flying through life, when you're navigating through life, if, if Mark Hoover trusts his own heart, he's going to crash. But if he walks, if he lives his life in wisdom, in other words, if he makes his choices and decisions based on superior information, he'll arrive alive. Why does the Bible say whoever trusts his own heart is a fool? Let's read on. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? <laughs> you know, I hate to admit this, but I'm in my mid-60s. Do you know what the most difficult thing for me to figure out about life is? I promise you. I mean, there are a lot of questions that are way over my head, but the most challenging thing for me to figure out is Mark Hoover. I cannot figure myself out. I don't know how, why I can take two steps forward and one step back, sometimes one step forward and two steps back. I mean, I don't understand why I don't make more progress with what I'm in, in life. I mean, the fact of the matter is the hardest person, and I think if we were honest with ourselves, the hardest person in our lives to understand is ourselves. I get asked a lot of times, Mark, do you think when we get to heaven we'll know our loved ones? Well, sure, we will. I'll tell you the person I'm gonna have the hardest time in heaven recognizing, me. I've never seen me without anxiety. I've never seen me without quirkiness. I've never seen me without those disappointing qualities. I mean, this is why the, the Bible is just like bringing us face to face with what we all know deep inside. The Bible says whoever trusts his own heart is not wise. Why? Because we, don't, we can't understand our hearts. They're too complex. That's why the Bible also says fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen, listen. So if I can't trust my own heart, my own feelings, how do I navigate life? Let's talk about the series for just a moment. Eight years ago, I did another series with another airplane. If you walk through the nursery complex, you'll see that it was a 737. It was made out of styrofoam, but it still weighed 1,000 pounds. I didn't think about that while it was over my head. <laughs> but I remember meeting Dr. Joe Beck. You saw him on, on, on the video. I, I called Joe and I said, hey, would you meet me at Starbucks? I don't know anything about being a pilot, so give me some pilot words so I won't sound as stupid as I really am on this. So Joe met me at Starbucks, and he said, okay, Mark, he said, Let, let's go to basics. He said, there are two kinds of pilots. There are VFR pilots, visual flight rules. He said, they're dependent on what they can see out their windshield. And there are IFR pilots. He said, IFR pilots are so well-trained that even if what they see out their windshield, even the sensations that they might feel, they can override those because they are so trained to trust their instruments. He said, the instruments provide superior information. And he said, because they're trained to trust their instruments, they can fly on days when VFR pilots can't fly. I remember sitting there at Starbucks that day and I wanted to jump up and say, I just heard the best definition of faith I've ever heard. Let me explain. I got friends who are non-theist, agnostic, and, and, and we're buddies and we talk. And, and through the years, you know, we would, we would get to that point in the discussion where I would share what I, what I thought and they would share what they thought. And, and, and we, we'd clearly be at an impasse. A predictable impasse. 
And I've had my friends say something like this to me. Mark, we just come from different perspectives. You're a person of faith. We're people of science. And, and they're trying to be gracious to me, but I can, I can read through that and I know what they're really saying. Their concept of faith, and I think a lot of people's concept of faith, is wanting to believe something so much that you believe it. That's not faith. That's fantasy. I mean, wanting to believe something so much that you believe it, that's crazy. And it doesn't have any, there are some people that have the idea, you know, it's like people talk about faith having power. Listen, faith is like an electronic device that has to be plugged into a wall socket. I mean, if our faith is not plugged into God, it doesn't mean anything. And I sat there that day and I thought, man, that is, that is what faith is. Faith is having superior information to what I can see and what I feel. In the eight years since that series, I've probably conducted two or 300 funerals. And in many of those funerals, I've even brought this up and talked about it. You know, I hate it when I go to a funeral and a pastor talks in flowery language. I always figure if there was ever a moment for straight talk, that's it. And I've said to the crowds many times, I fly to Texas tomorrow to preach my niece's funeral. I may talk about this there. I've said the honest truth is here at this funeral, everything we can see out of our eyes is bad. We have a casket or an urn. We have the trappings of a funeral. We're going to go out to the cemetery. In the, in the essence of academic, honestly, everything we can see is bad. But for those who have faith, those who know the promises of God, we can see beyond this day and we can see where the person we love actually is. And the thing about having faith, I've said to many audiences, even though this is a tough day, we can still fly today. We're not grounded today because we've got superior information. We are trusting our instruments. We are not VFR pilots today. Your success in life and mine is built on one thing. It's built on our ability to overcome spiritual spatial disorientation and to fly through life trusting superior information, trusting our instruments. Got to tell you, the series really starts next week. This is all introduction. Does this count against my time? You know, for the next few weeks, we're going to get into some of that superior information. We're going, to, we're going to see what God has to say about flying in different situations. We have a talk coming up called Traffic, and it's about navigating relationships, which some of you might find helpful after getting together with your family over Christmas. <laughs> what does God have to say about navigating difficult relationships? A message called Traffic. Listening to the Tower. We have a message called Bad Weather, just flying in difficult circumstances of life. But it's time to end this talk, so let's just end it talking about faith, because that's what flying by instruments is. I'm starting here for a reason. On the first weekend of a new year, we tend to be open to change. You know, it's, it's January. We're open to doing something different about our health or our nutrition, especially after the way some of us ate during the holidays. We're open, to diff- we're open to change with relationships. We call these New Year's resolutions. At least that's what they used to call them. But it's true, isn't it, that there are endless jokes about New Year's resolutions? Why? Be- because they almost always fail. 
Do we ever ask ourselves why? Why is it that at the beginning of a year, I want to make meaningful change, but by the time February rolls around, it's kind of in the rearview mirror. I mean, do we, ever, do we ever ask ourselves why when we're taking that expensive treadmill that we bought to the garage to get it ready for the garage sale? When we're marking it pennies on the dollar because we just want to get it out of the house and we're tired of it. So when the garage sale happens and somebody comes by and they're looking at it, we want to tell them it was barely used. But we're caught in between getting the most money for the treadmill that we can get and being really embarrassed. Do we ever ask why? Or we can say, well, markets, because doing the right thing is hard. That's not the reason. You do a lot of hard things. Why do we resolve to make change? Well, we resolve to make change because we think that those actions that we need to perform are right. We need fewer calories. We need to exercise more. We need to cut up the credit cards. So if it's the right thing, why do we fail? Drum roll. I love it. You guys always do the drum roll at 11.15. Now, I'm going to tell you before I make this statement, I understand that I'm entering the realm of semantics. And, and I'm defining these terms a particular way. I think I'm defining them the way the Bible does. But I understand that there are broader interpretations. But just hear me out completely. We think it but we don't believe it. If I just think it, it doesn't change me. I don't own it. Hidden down in the swamps of my psyche, I really don't believe it. It's why I return to the old pattern. Listen, guys, I must have lost 5,000 pounds in my lifetime as an adult. And I've tried every diet. I mean, not anymore. I'm on healthy nutrition. But, but I remember back in the days I tried the diet where it's like you could, you know, yeah, you meat. You could eat a lot of meat. You couldn't eat the bread, but you could eat the meat. And then I've been on the diets where you could eat the bread, but you couldn't eat the meat. The one thing I've discovered is an axiom for life. You cannot have the whole hamburger. That's just a fact. (laughs) So I clearly did that because I thought it was the right thing, but I didn't believe it was the right thing because I returned back to my old way. See, at the very core of my psyche, I really believe My way is better. When I believe something, it's part of me. It drives my actions. Because at the end of the day, if we take a look at where we are today, our lives are a product of what we actually believe because we do what we believe. I mean, in Genesis, where the Bible talks about the first sin of Adam and Eve, the Bible says the woman was convinced. In other words, she owned it personally, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. I mean, the Bible talks all the time about believing, and I think it's something that we need to explore. The most famous verse of the Bible is John 3, 16, where the Bible says, God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whoever, what? Believes. I mean, over and over and over, the Bible tells us how to have a relationship with God, and there's only one verb, believe. I can think that Jesus was a historical figure who probably died. I can even mentally agree with that. But mentally agreeing with that, I can really go on and live my life the way I want to live my life and really not give Jesus much of a thought. 
And like a lot of people in many churches, perhaps even New Spring, I can say, I've checked that box. I mentally agree that Jesus died for me. But that's where it stopped. But if I believe, I trust the truth I mentally agree with. I don't want to be flipped with your trite, but I'll just tell you something. I told you already, I was afraid to fly for many, many years. I promise you, I could have done, I could have written a paper. I could have written, I could have given a speech on the safety of air flight. I could have lectured on how safe, I could have, I could have said that flying is safer than driving When I was afraid to fly, I could have said those things, but there was a day in March many years ago where I walked down that breezeway and stepped into a 737 and buckled myself in until the plane took off. I could think it was safe. It was something else when I got on the plane. To believe means that you commit to it and you put your whole weight on it. The reason why I go here today, and like I said, we really haven't started the series. We started next week. But the reason why I go here is nothing was more important to Jesus than faith. I mean, I don't think he ever said, hey, that was a nice sermon. I don't think he ever said that was a nice song. You know, maybe he did. But what we see is every time Jesus found faith, it just lit him up. And when he didn't find it, it disappointed me. There was the woman who defied social convention and went and snaked through the crowd. She was dying. She'd been losing blood for 12 years. She was pale and gaunt. And, but she said to herself, if I can just touch, his, if I can just touch the, the little fringes on his garment, I'll be well. See, here's the thing. She believed the book of Malachi, which was the end of her Bible. The Bible said when the son of righteousness would arise, he'd have healing in the fringes of his garment. I think that was a metaphorical expression, but this woman took it seriously. And she touched him and she was healed. And Jesus said, wow, great faith. There was, of all people, a Roman soldier who had an assistant who was dying. And this Roman soldier went to Jesus and asked Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, sure, I'll come to your house. And the soldier said, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, but I understand authority. My commanding officer tells me to do this and I do it. I have people under me. I tell them to do things and they do it. I know what authority is and you have authority over sickness and all you have to do is speak the word. And Jesus said, wow, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And he was always disappointed when he didn't find it. What was he always saying to his disciples when they went crazy during a storm? Where's your faith? And speaking of our times, Jesus said, when I come, will I find faith on the earth? Well, I'm going to end the series, end the sermon rather, where I began it today. And I want to give you a verse and then we'll stop here and then we'll pick it up next week. The Bible says, without faith... It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay, put that in modern language. Whoever comes to God must believe he is who he says he is and that he's right. 
I can't salad bar God. You know, when I go to a salad bar, I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that and whatever. I can't do that with God. God is God. And if I want to have interaction with God, I have to believe that he is who he said he is and that he's right. And when I trust what he says, I can fly on days when other people can't fly because I'm not just flying by what I see. I'm flying by instruments. Would you bow your head with me, please? Thank you for listening today. I, I know today's talk really goes counter to our times, but it needs to because people believe so many things today that are so far off from the truth. But we'll leave that there for the moment. And I just want to close by asking you if you know that you've ever put your faith and trust in Jesus. You say, Mark, I think Jesus died for me. I think he arose from the grave. That's wonderful. And it's where it starts. It's where faith begins. But let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you abandoned all other thoughts and just trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Like I said, has there ever been a time when you got on the plane, fastened your belt, and said, I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior? If there has, wonderful. But if you're here watching online or North Auditorium or television, you're here today and you say, Mark, I just want to make sure that I've settled that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of faith. And these aren't magic words, but I'm going to put a little break in between each line. And if you want to say this to God, you can. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm broken. I've sinned. And I can't fix myself. But by faith, I believe that you love me. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I claim him as my savior and my king. I put all my confidence in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now before you step out, if you just pray with me, I have a gift I want to give you. And it's free, no strings attached, I promise you. Inside this, there's a New Spring Bible. There's a little book I wrote called My New Walk with God. There's some other cool things. If you're here on campus, all you need to do is text the word PRAY to 97000. Any info center, just go back and say, I pray with Mark. They'll give this to you. Put it under your arm, take it home. If you're watching online or on television, if you want this and you just pray with me, you can just text the word PRAY to 97000. Follow the steps and we'll mail this out to you. Thanks for being here for this week of celebration and the first week of Flying by Instruments. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time newspring.org.